Hello, ardent listeners. This is Film and Lit with Danny and Film Laura. Film and Lit? Sorry, that's the class that I took in college. I took a Film and Lit, too. I aced that. <laughs> I lo- That was honestly my favorite class. Oh, it was it, one of my BU. favorites. No, actually, no. Production uh, 2 was my favorite class at anyway, BU. But continue. The title is Film is Lit with Danny and Laura. I'm Laura, the book quote-unquote expert. And I'm Danny... The film expert. Or lover is a better term. Right. We're both... Lover, not experts. Yes. And this episode, we're going to be talking about... Gone Gone Girl! Girl! One of my favorite books. One of my favorite movies. It's up there. I think we're we're doing a lot of heavy hitters. Yeah. We're really... Season one, right off the bat, just going through our favorite films. Well, this isn't my favorite film, but it's certainly an exceptional film. It's in your top 100 list, I believe. Mm Mm-hmm. In mine. Well, why don't we start out talking about Danny's Gone Girl journey. How sure. did you come to watch this movie the first time? Yeah, I am a ardent David Fincher fan. Oh, what? He's a cinephile and he likes David Fincher? How original. <laughs> but yeah, of course. My brothers introduced me to Fight Club when I was very young. My parents didn't know I'd watched it, but watching that film at such a young age, I think I was... 10. The first time I didn't like it because it was so dark. Being that young, I wasn't used to those heavy themes. But I knew that there was something else there. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm a kid. So I don't, I don't get really what's going on. But I can tell that there's something there that one day I'm going to get. I actually had that thought as a kid of being this like, one day, this will make sense to me. And I wanted to seek that out. I hadn't become a full-on film lover yet. I knew I wanted to work in Hollywood in some capacity at that age, but I wasn't really sure. So my obsession stemmed from Fight Club, and I followed David Fincher throughout his career. In 2011, he released one of the best movies ever made, The Social Network, (laughs) and that's in my top ten. Mm-hmm. So when Gone Girl came out in 2014, you know I saw that opening weekend. Really? I was, yeah, I was getting ready for And I was invested because it seemed like everyone had read the book. My mom had read the book. Everyone of was course. talking about it when it came out. What the, the book came out when? A couple years before? 2012. Yeah, so two years before the movie mm-hmm. came out. So that means that the book was so successful that the rights were immediately sold to a movie studio to have it be made because Mm -hmm. it usually takes, what, two years to make a movie? So you could imagine. That's how popular the novel was. So I knew about it. I didn't know the plot, and I didn't want to know because I knew, I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is exactly in Fincher's wheelhouse. And I was so happy when it was announced that he was directing because I'm like, obviously, I couldn't imagine anyone else tackling this Mm. this material, especially how David Fincher directs. He is such a distinct style. In terms of how his actors deliver lines, in terms of how his films look, he uses digital, Mm. and his films are very crisp. But you don't normally associate digital photography with sensual, misty imagery. Usually digital yields a crisp, kind of Mm. very clear picture, and and that can be great too. I mean, Mm. look at the movie Roma, uh, or Emma. Both those movies shot digital, look beautiful, and they... They perfectly capture the mood that each movie's going for. And also compare that to, say, a movie we just watched, Bad Education, 
Which, which is... I'll toot my own horn, by the way. Since dating Danny, he's been trying to coach me about spotting the differences between a movie shot on film and a movie shot in digital. And I immediately spotted that Bad Education had been shot on film. Great job, maybe. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, and bad, bad Education is shot in film. It's kind of aggressively dark and it's texturized, but it also, that works for that tone. And and David Fincher, he's such a stickler for his style, that, and he does all these takes, he's known for doing takes, that his digital photography looks like film. It, well, it looks like its own thing. It has this kind of deep color, this deep saturation that it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a David Fincher film. Mm-hmm. So I saw it opening weekend uh, with my friends Caroline and Rob. We, we loved it. it. It was awesome. I immediately became obsessed with it like most David Fincher films. I watched it again week later I, I got it on dvd when it came out so yeah i'm i'm all in on this film i have a lot to say i don't think it's a perfect movie most films aren't uh, except for the social network and the nine other movies in my top 10 list those are perfect <laughs> movies we'll get to that list at, at another point another episode but yeah love this movie and i'm a huge fan of the author of the book source material mm-hmm. who also wrote the script. I love when that happens when yep. the author contributes mm-hmm. to the script. Gillian Flynn, she's a rock star. Uh, she wrote the screenplay to Widows, which came out in 2018. Mm-hmm. Great film. She's doing a lot of awesome work. She wrote Sharp Objects on HBO. The show? Yeah. Um, oh, I was going to ask you if she, yeah, because that was her first book, right? which I read, and we don't have to get too much into this before you're done but yeah i i actually didn't like that book very much but cool well yeah that's my journey laura do you have a diary <laughs> please where is it i don't need <laughs> to leave it around in case you know things go south well I, f- I falsely burned it what in the basement of my father's abandoned home well now that you're telling me that i'm gonna your plan is why would you why would you tell me that you're not as smart as amy what is your journey with Gone Girl. Well, it's funny that you mention that you had heard about it when the book came out and you mentioned that it was a huge hit because in 2012, I was sort of thinking back to where I was in my life, senior year of high school slash freshman year of college. And I think I had my head so far up J.K. Rowling's ass <laughs> that I didn't read this book when it came out, which... I probably wouldn't have read it anyway. I actually only recently came around to thrillers, and Gillian Flynn is actually a huge part of why I started to really get sucked into the thriller genre. But I read this book only because I found it at a thrift store, and I had heard good things about the movie, so I picked it up, and by the time I had cracked into chapter one, I absolutely could not put it down. I think I read it, what, in a week, maybe less than that. I probably could have read it over a weekend if I hadn't been working. But I just could not put it down. And when Danny was telling me who had directed the movie and who was in it, I was familiar with, obviously, Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike from... James Bond. (laughs) Die Another Day. (laughs) Otherwise known as the best Bond movie. We'll talk about that in a later episode. But 
from what I had heard and from the few David Fincher movies that Danny had introduced me to, I was pretty excited. And so I read it really quickly. We sat down and watched the movie. And even though I knew all of the twists, and let me tell you, the twists are crazy in this book. Yeah. You know nothing prior because I truly did not know anything about this book going in. It was so well cast, so well directed, uh, that it is so well written that I enjoyed it immensely, even though I knew the plot. And it and it doesn't really deviate, truly, at all. Right. And there had been some speculation, some rumors and gossip fitting, because this movie deals with gossip in the media. <laughs> um, but there had been some rumors that the ending was going to be different than the novel. And I didn't... Oh. I didn't know I didn't know the story of the novel going in, but there had been reports that the ending was going to deviate. And from my what my friends told me, it was like, no, that was the same. Mm. She comes home and then they're living together, and that's she gets pregnant, and that's mm. it. So yeah, but you mentioned casting. Let's just get right into it, Let's shall do we? It. Yes. This is a constant among all Fincher films. Casting is always spot on flawless and a lot of times what happens in his films is there's stunt casting which means a person is up for a role that you wouldn't normally associate with them case mm -hmm. in point tyler perry who normally does the medea mm -hmm. movies these comedy movies where he's um in drag as this character medea mm -hmm. that's what he normally does it, he rarely ever does anything beyond uh, comedies that he writes and directs mm -hmm. and he stars in as the character of Medea. But he's perfect for mm -hmm. the role of next he's lawyer, so, uh, Trevor. So well cast. He does such a great job with that. And also, like, Amy's uh, parents in this movie. Right. It, it's, so, it's so rare in movies. It, it, it's funny. It's so rare that her parents actually look like her, the actors have the same facial structure. And it's kind of like, you would think that that's a given that, oh yeah, if you cast someone who's your parent, they should look like them. But like these people actually look like mm -hmm. they could, gave birth to, <laughs> to Amy. Amy, Elliot Dunn. <laughs> and Ben Affleck, let me tell you. So he wasn't nominated for an Oscar for mm, this movie. I think he definitely should have. Rosamund Pike was well-deserved. She didn't win. Which she, I think she should have. But Ben Affleck was cast because David Fincher knew that Ben Affleck in his personal life was always in the limelight due to his relationship with Jennifer Lopez early on in his career and then kind of his marriage uh, troubles with Jennifer Garner, the very highly publicized marital problems. Mm -hmm. And so he is this man who's always in the limelight, always trying to defend himself in some way from these media outlets that mm -hmm. are kind of they're kind of like parasites sucking on him for any type of story and so that's why he was cast um it, it, there there's a great director commentary that david fincher gives for this movie i highly recommend you listen to it where he goes into detail of all the casting but even even the secondary characters like the uh like the detective played by kim oh, dickens kim, kim dickens let me just say that everyone rightly talks about how amazing Ben Affleck and Rosen Pike are, but 
Freaking Kim Dickens. Detective Boney. Uh, she. It, oh, yeah. It is so, and I love this about movies, but I love watching characters who are good at their job just come in and like do their job. That fr- mm-hmm. that first scene when she comes in, when she's first introduced and she's going around the house putting she around the sticky notes. She puts on the gloves. She puts on the oh, gloves yeah. and, is, and she's questioning Nick and you can see that she's slowly starting to to suspect Nick is up to something. And then in, later on in the interrogation, that, that kind of like pseudo interrogation mm-hmm. at the police station when she's just like, you don't know if she has any friends. You don't know what she does. You don't know your wife's blood type. Oh. Like it, it, her line delivery and. Well, and I was just going to say her accent, speaking of the way that she delivers lines, she drops her K's. Mm. So she starts, when she talks to Nick, she goes, all right, Nick. And then yeah. she, when she asks, so what does your wife do for work? Worth. So well executed. That accent is really part of that character. And her second officer, played by Patrick Fugit, who is in Almost Famous, the kid in Almost Famous. I haven't seen that. Um, he, he's great, too. He's like, are you sure you guys are married? And he really <laughs> should... Both. They're such a, a dynamic pair. Very underrated, I think. Very... Un- not talked about because they're not the stars of the mm-hmm. movie. But... That's kind of the case with all Fincher movies. Everyone is just bringing their A game. He just he just rings it. David Fincher just rings it out of his actors. <laughs> um, sure. he, he's known for doing uh, a crazy amount of takes for like anything, any mm-hmm. scene. That's mm-hmm. kind of his reputation in Hollywood. And that's why a lot of actors highly respect him, but don't work with him again because being on a movie shoot with Fincher is extremely difficult because you're working long days saying the same lines hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. Uh, in Zodiac, the movie Zodiac, Jake Gyllenhaal stormed off set with Robert Downey Jr., who's also in that movie, because they had to do a scene a reported 150 times. <laughs> and the scene that broke Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, this is a quote from him, was saying, after 40 takes, David Fincher said, Okay, those are good. Um, let's 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 do it all again. And he deleted right there on set those forty takes that he did. So it's not no it's it's not like you do all these takes and then you go back and you pick the best one. You you do it over and over and over again. And if it's not if it's not exactly what he wants, he doesn't even care. He doesn't even give a shit. He just he deletes it all. He, he doesn't just... even take what's good. He deletes it in front of oh you. Gosh. So that's kind of the work ethic <laughs> that you need to have. And it, it, it's similar to Stanley Kubrick on The Shining, right? Shelley Duvall was terrorized uh, by mm-hmm. Kubrick on set, but afterwards he was saying what a great admiration she has for Kubrick. And that's kind of the same thing that's ha- that happens here. So, yeah. I could never be an actor. Right. I, oh, my God. Can you imagine having 40 drafts of your whatever being deleted? Yeah. Sorry. But I'm just like, I can't. No. But, no, everyone in the <laughs> cast is, is great. Uh, Missy Pyle, who plays basically Nancy Grace. It's like the mm-hmm. same haircut, same demeanor. Um, you have Emily Ratajkowski playing the mistress, the, the other woman. Right. And Neil so, Patrick Harris is Yeah. Great. Neil Patrick Harris playing also against type. He was cu- coming off of How I Met Your Mother playing this very womanizing... Uh, asshole. Yeah. So <laughs> this, you know, kind of hot shot. And here he's playing completely against type, this kind of creep. But it he, he nails it. Everyone nails it, which is mm. my point. Oh, and finally, Carrie Coon, who plays Nick's 
sister, Margo, oh, she, Go, yeah. which I didn't even know that they were calling her Go. I didn't even know what that meant until like the second time when I watched it. I'm like, oh, oh. her name's Margo. They're calling her Go. I, I, that just kind of, I, I, I missed that. But, Late pickup. <laughs> but this was her feature film debut. I didn't know who she was when the movie came out. She had been kind of a, a stage actress who racked up a bunch oh, of Tonys. But this was her feature film debut. A couple of years later, she she would star in The Leftovers, one of my favorite shows. She absolutely kills it in there. But she's great here, too. She's kind of the, the heart of the movie, I always claim. She, yeah, she's definitely the conscience. Yeah, the moral center. Focus. Yeah, but also, going back to Kim, Kim Dickens... She also, Kim Dickens, her detective, uh, Boney, is kind of the audience surrogate, where you're kind of trying to figure out the mystery along with her, mm -hmm. and you're like, yeah, of course Nick is suspicious. Of course Nick probably killed, like, you're searching for more. You don't, you don't immediately suspect that Nick is responsible for everything, just mm -hmm. like Detective Boney doesn't either. But it, it's it's so fun to go along with the mystery with her and try to put the pieces together as as she is. So that's another great element of Gillian, uh, so of Gillian Flynn's script mm -hmm. is that you you're kind of you're you're along for the ride. Yeah. Well, let's take a step back and start at the beginning of the book. So I've talked about how much I love a good epigraph and how it's sort of the key to the map of the rest of the novel. And so I wanted to read the opening epigraph of Gone Girl because it really sets a tone for what's coming later in the novel. And it's especially important in the context that G Gillian Flynn sets. I've read a bunch of interviews with her and I've watched a few on YouTube where she talks about how she was really inspired to write this book after reading the really tragic disappearance of Lacey Peterson in California and how she used Lacey's story to kickstart this idea about marriage and about how people act in a marriage and once they get into a relationship. So I want to read the epigraph quickly, like I said. So this is from Tony Kirshner's play, The Illusion. And it says, Love is the world's infinite mutability. Lies, hatred, murder even, are all knit up in it. It is the inevitable blossoming of its opposites. A magnificent rose smelling faintly of blood. Oh, <laughs> so, Gillian pretty ominous. sly fox. Right. It's pretty ominous. It's a pretty ominous way of opening the book. And so there are two things that I, I really want to focus on when we talk about the novel. And the first one, like I mentioned, is marriage and the way that people act in relationships that end up either becoming or not becoming a marriage. And the second thing, which is a little bit more of a larger umbrella idea, is what makes this novel slash thriller better than a lot of others because when I read this a few years ago probably about three or four and I've read it a couple times since that started nagging at me you know it's so good and I can clearly revisit it even though I know the plot twists and still get a lot of enjoyment out of it but I really 
want to talk about why this thriller is a lot better than others. And why I can keep reading it even though I know the twists. And I think that goes back to the question about who you become when you're in your 20s or maybe your 30s and you've sort of been trained from the time Sorry, Laura's burping like crazy. I, I made her a tall ass margarita. I just with, saturated with tequila. She is she is burping at her butt. She is out of control. Yeah, I here's a here's a tip for margaritas. If you put ginger ale in them, I know what you're saying. Ginger ale, what? They're so good. Yeah, ginger it's ale Danny's is special. the key. Is the key the Danny special? Yeah, one part tequila. <laughs> one part limes, one part margarita mix, and one part ginger ale. Oh boy. Anyway. Yeah. You good? Me. You good, dude? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to burp out the toxins. Anyway, I want to talk about the way that 20s, people in their 20s and 30s have been sort of raised to start looking for that long-term soulmate sort of relationship that you're supposed to be in by the time you're out of college by the time you graduate you're supposed to be in a serious enough relationship to perhaps move in with this other person perhaps marry this person and that can cause the biggest issues in a relationship because you end up starting to act the way that you think that other person wants to see and that's really where the dysfunction happens in almost all of the relationships. It's not just between Nick and Amy. It's really clear that there are so many times where Nick is acting the way that he thinks he should in front of the cameras, in front of Amy's parents, in front of Detective Boney, even in front of his sister, which is supposed to be the most trusting and sincere relationship in the novel slash the story overall. And they're just, there's just breakdown after breakdown after breakdown because these people are acting the way they think they should rather than acting and interpreting other people's actions as consistent with the way that they actually feel. So I think that's sort of the overall point of the novel. Right. And not only do you act differently in relationships, but you also cast people in roles exactly. based on interpret other right, people's yeah. actions based on your expectations. Like you were mentioning that before, exactly. People in their twenties, they have this plan of I'm going to meet this mm -hmm. person, and here's what I like, and I want this person to align to these certain characteristics. Mm -hmm. And when you set these expectations, you're setting the other person up to fail, right? And you're casting them. It's like it's like a movie. You're casting them in a role when exactly. when people are more complex than that. They're they're not. They don't fit the exact role that that you want all the time. And and that's and that's natural. That's good. That's why it's like okay to fight in relationships because you're figuring out. You're coming to compromises about what can work for both of you. You're figuring out mm -hmm. what your partner likes and dislikes. You're getting you're getting down to it. And so I was just going to say both the book and the movie also have the media angle. Definitely. And they talk about how the media also constructs narratives around stories, around mm -hmm. people. And what I kind of like about this is that it's a very um, bipartisan message. It's not 
pointing fingers at, like, say, just Fox News, right? Although mm-hmm. they do have that Nancy Grace stand-in with Missy Pyle. But it it's all news, whether CNN or Fox News, whatever. They all follow that they, they all, juicy story. Right. They all follow that juicy story and construct a narrative and kind of gravitate towards gossip. I think this is especially prevalent with Detective Boney's uh, second officer, uh, James Gilpin, like, Mm-hmm. played by Patrick Fugit, like I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. he immediately suspects Nick, like Boney does, but but he has already made his decision. He has gone straight to the gossip and being like, this guy killed his wife. Like, why haven't and we arrested... And my wife thinks he's killed his wife. Yeah, my yeah, wife my wife bag. has it, so why, you know, why haven't we arrested him? He's so quick to condemn Nick that he... The story that he has told himself mm-hmm. has clouded his judgment and kind of the truth of what's actually happened. And not only does it form inform his opinion quickly, it also never strays. He stays with that and no matter how many details start not adding up, like Boney, you can kind of see throughout the story, she goes back and forth. She's really objective when she comes to the scene. She starts marking inconsistencies like the iron that isn't turned off, the blood spatter that she finds in the kitchen. She's clearly a little suspicious of the crime scene in the living room, but she stays objective. And he's not objective the whole time. Even when, at the very end, when Nick is like, how could she have gotten a box cutter if Desi kept her tied up all the time? He's like, can you just be happy that your wife is home? Yeah, (laughs) he he doesn't want, he has so deep in the role that he constructed for Nick that he is not even accepting of the truth that's right in front of his right. face. Yeah. But so I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier. I want to talk about the lack of confrontation between a lot of characters. So something that the novel, I think, just goes a little bit deeper into because it has the time to rather than the movie where you might want to keep it contained within two hours. It talks a lot about the buildup of Nick and Amy's relationship to their marriage and then from their marriage to the day of and basically I just want to highlight that they're always mentally sparring and if Amy has an issue with Nick or Nick has an issue with Amy they never confront it they never say hey it would be really nice if you clean the toilet or hey it would be really nice if you clean the dishes once in a while or if you came home on time or if you came out to see my friends when I asked you to and hang out with them at the bar. Like, they never confront things. They always try to express themselves through the filter of this mental sparring. And so they're constantly talking to each other like, for example, Amy says, I'm not going to treat you like a dancing monkey like all my friends do with their husbands. I'm not going to, you know, dangle a banana in front of your face and say, oh, if you don't come out to the bar and hang out with my friends, I'm not going to have sex with you tonight. And that lack of confrontation, both of them are using that as a screen and an excuse to say, we have a perfect relationship because we never fight. Mm. And that is really, it's almost comical because, you know, if you're in a very committed relationship, the silliest things, I mean... Take, for example, we're all in quarantine right now. And I know Danny and I sometimes get pissed at each other for, like, really little things. And 
they don't matter, but if you don't bring them up, they build up. And then as soon as something comes up that might be really minor, you might explode and you might get really angry and frustrated. And instead of repressing what you truly want to communicate, no matter how minor it is, like, again, washing the dishes, something like that, instead of presenting that as something that doesn't really matter, you're repressing ultimately that communication and contributing that buildup that ends up creating an explosion. And that's something I think that Amy ended up exploiting and retooling reality to exploit what she thought that the police officers might see as the trouble in their relationship. These really minor things that she started letting go and then perhaps they built up and ended up with Nick's explosion of killing her or whatever. So she exploited that role-playing really, really well. And I think she literally inhabits those roles to exploit other people. And a lot of other characters are not as able to inhabit those roles. Nick tries, and I think mentally he knows the roles that he's supposed to play, and they change throughout the story. Like, for example, in the beginning, he knows that he's supposed to play the role of the concerned husband. But there are so many times when he's with the police where they're just absolutely floored that he doesn't know who Amy's best friend is or what she does for work or what she does to distract herself from moving down to Missouri from New York. It's and, seeming, <laughs> and he seemingly doesn't like her at all, which is right. true. Which is, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, where she's playing off of that. She knows that he can't bring Amy himself. Knows, right. Yeah, Amy knows that he can't bring himself to even show that he cares because he really doesn't. He, right, he even she's is, functioning on such a higher level mentally than he is right. that she knows how to play his understanding of the roles oh. and his inability to act the way that he should as the quote-unquote concerned husband. Oh, Nick, what a, what well, and a I, dumb and slightly likable because here's the thing he's he's a bad man in the sense that he cheated on his wife and in a very yeah a poor husband really didn't show that he was likable off the bat but then you compare that with what amy is now doing to him and then what what nick is the situation that he's forced in it's like you empathize with him right and i i want to talk about so this this really tiny detail that's not in the book that i think was really really well construed in the movie is when the police take him into an interrogation room very early on this is they've just left his house from the crime scene and he sings the law and order theme song he's like oh i i feel like i'm on an episode of law and order and he does the dum dum yeah (laughs) right and that probably couldn't it would have come across in the book i think but the way that he puts a little attitude to it and kind of makes it sarcastic that's such a great way of getting the audience to root against him right off the bat because he's so flippant and in the novel it goes back between amy's point of view and Nick's point of view. Oh, she just hit <laughs> her mark. That's the mark we were talking about. I'm going to just move that away from you. I think you had a little too much. <laughs> All right. Stop. 
so it goes between Nick's point of view and then Amy's point of view, and you can tell Nick is flippant because of his inner thoughts. And you don't necessarily get that from Nick in the movie. I think it leans a little heavier on Amy's inner monologue or inner dialogue in the movie, but that was just a great way of showing how flippant Nick is toward the situation. And, but how also he's not flippant because he killed her because he doesn't care. He's flippant because, hey, who of us has ever been in a situation where their spouse or their partner has gone missing? How are you supposed to know? How are you supposed to judge? But that that really glaring lapse of judgment is really telling and it immediately gets the audience to root against Nick, even though we really aren't in a situation or aren't in a place to judge him. <laughs> yeah, and you also, you, you feel for him like in that scene when he's standing in front of uh, his wife's missing poster and everyone's taking pictures. They're right. saying, like, I would act the same by being like, wait, do, do I smile? Like, if I'm being told to smile, I'm like, okay, I'll smile. But do, then, I, do I not smile? I'm like, like a sociopath. Yeah, yeah like, like what happens? And But if I they... do smile, they're going to take that and they're going to twist it saying, right. like, I don't care. It's like, I want to pretend. And he's also pretending to care because he doesn't love his wife, but he also doesn't want to be up for murder, charged with murder. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And then I think something that really starts, one of the things that I love about this novel and the movie is that it plays with putting you in Nick's position and then it plays with putting you in Amy's position. And there are a couple points that I want to point out that really, I think, are constructed to switch side, to switch the audience from side to side. So there's one that comes very early in the novel. Nick says, it was my fifth lie to the police. It was just starting. And so everything up to that point is setting Nick up to be sort of an affable man who truly has nothing to do with his wife's disappearance. And then as soon as that line comes in, we are told that he is an unreliable narrator and there are four more lies that he's told before this one that we don't know. We don't know what's true at right. that point. It completely throws you off. And then the one that throws you off for Amy is not when you find out that she's still alive. In a lot of ways, you're almost like, oh my God, you're right. Amy got away from this guy who hit her and didn't want children and forced her to move from New York to Missouri by kind of psychologically abusing her and becoming this man that she didn't agree to marry. When she tells us that she's planned to kill herself, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's, that crosses a bit of a line because you understand maybe if she was a battered housewife that she maybe had the right to run away. Maybe she didn't have the right to frame her murder or frame at least a kidnapping. But when she says that she's literally going to kill herself to make sure that Nick is on death row and dies, that's a line that I think really starts to make you wonder, okay, what is real? Right. Who's constructing what? And where is the storyline leading me now? I think that that almost 
puts you on point A again. And you're like, okay, wait, I thought I was on point D. I thought I was constructing the evidence and getting to the end of the movie or the end of the story. And now I'm kind of back at point A. Like, where is this going? And what assumptions that I've made have taken me off the right track. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the movie, it's just you just hear the dialogue entries from Amy. You don't mm-hmm. get, like you're saying, you don't get any um, internal dialogue from Nick. But with Amy in the first half of the movie, you have no reason to believe that the diary entries right. are are fabricated because when you're writing a diary, you're writing to yourself. So you have no incentive to lie. Like, exactly. like, why would you lie if you're writing to yourself? So, right. uh, so she tricks, so you, the audience, Gillian Flynn tricks you into believing that all this is true. And some of it's true, right? Like mm-hmm. it's mid later, the, the early parts of their marriage was true, but all the abuse and that kind of her being scared for her life, right. that's all fabricated. It, but, but you don't know that until the amazing midpoint Mm-hmm. reveal it's like happens almost directly right smack dab in, in the middle of the movie when a- amy is driving down and she has that whole monologue of saying of why she's doing this to nick and that's when you that's when you you understand of why she's why she's doing this but then she becomes the villain because she has that line of nick took my home away from me referring to how they moved without him asking her took my home away from me, took my money, and took my marriage. That's murder. Let the punishment fit the crime. And at that point, it's like, well, well. this punishment <laughs> is a little, like... Like, who the fuck yeah. does that? <laughs> but but at the, at the same time, it's also early enough in the movie where you're just like, like, hell yeah, this chick's badass. Like, look at what she... <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Honestly. And then later on, you start to be like, oh, she's she's like evil and crazy. Not, An and, absolute sociopath. And a, a, great, a great detail that I love is in the calendar that she has, she has all these little sticky notes with <laughs> yeah. kill self? Which is not mark? in the book. Interesting. I love that visual yeah. cue uh, of kill self. <laughs> yeah, which you're like, jeez, like, she is like, yikes. And... I love how in Gillian Flynn's script, she has this line where Amy says that she uh, writes personality quizzes for a magazine, mm-hmm. uh, that profession. So she literally needs to know all the different personalities and be able to inhabit mm-hmm. those personalities, like an actual sociopath. It li- they literally tell you right on the up up front, Amy is a sociopath. She right. can... She, she writes them in her head, right. too, because you're right, that is her profession, and that's grown out of her parents almost laying out Amy's perfect life with mm-hmm. the amazing Amy books. And that's obviously talked about a lot in the book and in the movie, that her parents almost get ahead of Amy by, and you see this in the party that Amy and Nick go to when Amy, I think, is getting married. Amazing Amy Gets Married. That book is written and it's being published and there's Mm -hmm. this huge party. And they walk into the party and there's this big poster that says, Amazing Amy Learns How to Play Cello or Amazing Amy Plays Cello. And Nick goes, I didn't know that you played cello. And she's like, oh yeah, well in eighth grade I quit playing cello. And sure enough, Amy became like, 
accepted to Juilliard because of how amazing her cello playing was. And then he goes, oh, I didn't know that you played volleyball. And <laughs> and she's like, she was like, I was cut freshman year, Amy right. made varsity. Right. Yeah. So it's set up for her that her parents, they deny that they're trying to you to push Amy to be these things through the books. But it's so clearly defined her life that she's then prompted to inhabit all of these options. She's creating all these options for herself and other people. And there's always the quote-unquote perfect option D. Be the perfect wife or be the perfect girlfriend. And she always, in her diary or in her head when she's trying to manipulate people, she always goes with option D or option C, all of the above, or be the perfect girlfriend or whatever. And that has become her mindset of setting up all of these options for herself and then choosing the quote-unquote perfect one, and that's the one that she executes. And that is such a creepy way of developing this character because yeah. it shows how well she develops herself. And you come to realize, I think, over the story arc that she is completely empty of anything real. Mm -hmm. And it's because she's had a lot fed to her. And I don't know, I guess you can go back and forth about nurture or nature. You know, she could have been born with a sociopathic gene or not. Or she could have been raised to become this <laughs> terrifying woman. But... I think it's really, it's pretty strongly suggested that the way that she was raised and the way that she's structured her life, that she's just taking, as a female, which is something that I think is a really good way of relating her to a lot of women, is that her, as a female, even though she sort of mentally pushes back on these stereotypes and says, I'm not going to be the nagging girlfriend, I'm not going to be the nagging wife, she ends up becoming this empty woman who has nothing to offer but the things that she thinks are going to get her to where she's going. So she's kind of a powerful woman, mm -hmm. but she's so manipulative about it that you can't eventually empathize with her. Because right. it's like, she kills Desi. And that smile she gives to Nick at the very end. Oh, so creepy. So Chills creepy. down my spine every time oh, I watch so that. Creepy. But that's... That's really ultimately what she becomes. She's this empty woman that fills herself with stereotypes to make sure that other people see her as the perfect woman, the perfect wife, the perfect friend, the perfect mother. And eventually all she's doing is pulling these strings and making everyone's lives miserable that know that she's pulling these strings and they just can't get out from under her thumb. Yeah, her Ugh. plan is really ingenious because it involves... Not just pulling the strings of everyone around her, but like the media we were talking about before of it all coming yes. down on Nick to uh, get him lethal injection. Of course, she couldn't probably predict that he would hire this hotshot lawyer, but even then, it's kind of, it's Nick's interview with Sharon Sheber, played by Cella Ward, great, great little tiny role. Mm -hmm. It's ultimately this interview that essentially quote unquote wins her back right. she sees that and the funny thing about that is nick is playing a role is putting up an act in this interview 
But when Amy eventually comes home, she says, I saw you up there, and I and because of that, I fought for you. I came back. I want that Nick. But the funny thing is that that's not Nick. He's very explicit about the right. way that he he knows going into that interview that he's gonna be have to act he's gonna have to act. In fact, I actually want to talk about a part in the book that's not in the movie, but he trains himself for that interview by act, by watching Hugh Grant's apology on the news about getting caught with a prostitute. Oh, interesting. So, and that's he watches really... that. He it, In the book, it's literally the lines are, I watched those interviews until I could recite them word for word. And the way that he stutters and the way that yeah. he admits he's such a terrible man, which is what women want to hear, that's what is the breakthrough for him. And that's how he trains himself to inhabit the role of the profusely apologetic husband who made a mistake but truly loves his wife. And that's who he wants to be with. And he, he strayed because of a mistake, but he knows what he really wants, and that's his Amy. And of being smart enough to realize... Amy's plan and to play ball with her like with right. the, in the movie of him saying we went to the wood woodshed and back together and her being like ah oh, he, he knows and of right. her and and then she took that as an opportunity because she clearly her, her original plan wasn't staying with Desi and uh, you know a couple nights in he's starting to become a little controlling of of slightly not not forcing her, but telling her what to wear and how to act. He's just like, and even him, he wa he wants a different person than what Amy actually is. He's just like, I, I miss my Amy. I'm looking forward to seeing the real Amy come come to be. And that's not again. It's just a bunch of men always projecting onto Amy what they want. But the thing is, Amy is uh, is crazy, and she'll well, right. and she'll. So she reacts instead of distancing herself right. from people who are trying to define her she decides to fight back by manipulating and that's obviously really toxic and i wanted to talk about a few characters who either see through the acting or are naive enough to under to sort of not even see that acting is going on and so i think those three characters are really really well represented with Boney, Tanner, Go. Tanner and Andy. is his name. Sorry, I said Trevor earlier. Tanner is uh, played by Tyler Perry. Oh, I didn't. I didn't catch that. But Boney and Tanner, I think, are the two characters that are smart enough to know that someone or multiple people are leveraging the acting role. Mm -hmm. I think Go and Andy are a little bit more naive. I think Go understands it a little bit more because she's twins with Nick and she finally understands when Nick makes the realization that he has to act to get at least the media on his side to perhaps get Amy back that she understands that there's a little bit of acting that has to go on. I think Andy is just completely and in fact I didn't mention Noelle Hawthorne, she's obviously too dumb to understand that. Uh, <laughs> she's referring to the pregnant friend. Right, Amy's quote-unquote friend. Yeah. Pregnant. She's obviously at the very end of the spectrum of 
knowing that Amy was acting at all. Like, she's so dumb, obviously, she didn't understand that Amy was pulling the wool over her eyes in order to serve her own purposes. So there are really, I guess, five characters from, I think, the spectrum of Tanner, who's in on the secret, who Nick tells, I'm pretty sure Amy is framing me, to Boney, who's skeptical the whole time. Maybe she doesn't have quite the key that she needs to understand. But she eventually comes around. She eventually comes around, and we see that in the epilogue in the book and in the movie where she's like, holy shit, Amy fucking did it. Yeah. (laughs) And she's a piece of shit, but nobody's going to believe her because she looks like a victimized housewife who was kidnapped and raped and got herself out of it. Right. And then to go to Andy to Noel. So I think there's a huge spectrum of people who Amy is lording over <laughs> and she everyone knows or doesn't know that she's manipulating them. But that I think really gets to the crux of the end if you want to get to the end. Because yes. oh boy, do I want to get to that. <laughs> so the final question that's especially set up in the novel, but definitely in the movie too, is that after Amy returns, obviously Nick knows, and (laughs) I love that moment in the movie when (laughs) she faints in his arms and he's like, you bitch. Yeah, amazing moment. (laughs) Amazing moment where she's in one scene admitting to Nick and also entirely manipulating the shit out of the newscasters who Uh are camped out outside her house or their house. So she, I guess, down the line, she ends up manipulating Nick because she tells him that she's pregnant. So Nick makes the decision to stop acting very quickly after Amy's home. They give an interview because he wants to make sure that Amy isn't going to kill him or whatever. So they give one final interview, and then after the media sort of backs off, he makes it very clear. In the novel, he actually writes his own novel, or memoir, about what happened, and he's going to go public with it. In the movie, it's more of he's just going to get a divorce and leave her. But he's clearly decided that he's done acting. He's done with Amy. He's done pretending that they have a perfect marriage and that they ever did. He's going to leave her. And... She goes into this whole monologue berating him about how they're catastrophically romantic and you really think that any other woman is going to replace me or you're going to be happy with anyone else? I, I murdered for you. Yeah. And so the final question is if you strip everything away, if you stop acting and you are your true self with your partner, can you really have a functional relationship (laughs) and I think that in a normal setting that's true and I think that's the point is that yes for normal people of course and that that's the point if you don't poison yourself with stereotypes and other people's expectations and you be fully yourself even if that means exposing your flaws then yes you can have a very successful relationship Obviously, in this novel... I mean, it's kinda, too late. <laughs> it's a little too late. <laughs> too late. And that's why the last line is so ominous of Nick, uh, vo- a voiceover of Nick. What have we done to each other? Like, it, they've been through so much that to honestly think of where they could go next 
is crazy. That's why the ending is so amazing because Gillian Flynn plays with, not only does she play with your expectations of how a normal thriller will play out with that reveal in the middle of the movie, but she sets it up that Amy is going to get caught, quote unquote, that, that, Nick, that she is going to meet her demise with earlier on in the film when she's in the casino, they, they have the cameras on her, then mm-hmm. also with uh, Detective Boney coming around to Nick's side at the end and have that meeting with him and Tanner and Go. Of, of, of they're clearly buddies now and trying to formulate a plan. And mm-hmm. it's all it's all leading up to, like, okay, how is this, how is Amy going to meet her end or get caught or, or face the consequences of what she's done? And and it does, she wins. Yeah. She wins. She, she saved, impregnates herself, essentially locking Nick in. And yeah, they're they're together now. So the thing that's most ominous when you say that Amy wins is in the book, it sort of ends with this long monologue given by Amy about how love should be or should not be unconditional. And the phrase love is unconditional takes you back to the stereotypes that started off this terrifying mess. And that is really chilling. However, she then subverts it by saying, no, love should be very conditional. I want these things out of my marriage and out of my womanhood and out of my motherhood. And if they don't happen, I don't know what's gonna happen. And so she's, come out of this whole situation realizing that an quote-unquote an undisciplined love like she says is a lazy kind of love and that's how you fall into the patterns that they were before this all happened which sort of exposes her sick understanding of what kicked off this whole thing so the issues weren't that they were lazy it was just that it was so much work to upkeep these roles and to pretend that they were perfect, uh, you know, human beings or a perfect couple, that it just wasn't working anymore. And at that point, I think a lot of people, in a lot of people's lives and relationships, that just means that it's over. I personally have been in two relationships that were so much work mentally to keep up that there was no emotion in them. And it was, every single comment was, a way to challenge the other person. And the communication wasn't deep because you were just trying to prove that you were more intelligent than that other person. Mm. And you understood the role of being a girlfriend or a boyfriend better than that other person. And so that's how she understands the breakdown in their relationship. When really it's just that they were both acting in the beginning and it was so much upkeep that they weren't acting the way that they truly were. And and that's where the breakdown happened. And so that just exposes her flaw. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that's what's so ominous about it is that this might happen again. <laughs> like yeah. she could fake or she her kidnapping again or she could fake the death of their child or she could you don't know by the end of the book or the right. story if she could literally murder their child to prove a point 
that Nick is not a good enough father. It's like they're taking them back, or it's like Gillian Flynn is taking them back to square one by giving them a kid and saying, all right, here are two new roles that you have to impose upon yourselves. Nick, you have to be a perfect father. And Amy, you have to be a perfect wife. And go, even though you know as Amy is fucked up as shit, you need to act like a perfect aunt. Because what are you going to do to the kid if you start right. letting that facade go and crack and the kid sees, God forbid, <laughs> what right. kind of person his mother is. And like in the movie, Margot was crying, you know, in her, yeah. in her kitchen, kind of begging Nick, like, how, how could you go back to her? Right. You're saying you want to stay? And Nick is being like, look, there's a kid involved now. I, it's not a matter of if I should go or not. I have to stay. Right. And yeah, and that's the thing where I was getting at before of how Gillian Flynn playing with your expectations, you, you don't, you just don't expect this kind of, it's not anticlimactic. It's just, you're expecting just everything to fall down in Amy and it, and it doesn't. And right. <laughs> this goes back to your very first question of the podcast. Why is this thriller better than most? Well, my answer to that, my kind of thesis is that it has all the makings of that kind of trashy, what I call fast food thrillers. Mm -hmm. You know how it's like, it, 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 it's very lewd and there's a lot of violence and death and cheating. And there's all these elements that right. you kind of see in trashy B material. Mm -hmm. But underneath it all, it has this very moving message about the roles we cast other people in relationships and how we change and are fake in our own relationships under that. And oh, addition yes. to that, it has the sheer craft of David Fincher's oh, di yeah. direction. And, and Gillian Flynn's writing. And Gillian Flynn's writing, which is A plus because like I was saying with that ending of just how it just like you're like, geez, like that's it? Like Oh my goodness! Like oh, shit. The, the, that's tough. and then all the technical stuff like Jeff Cronenweth's amazing cinematography. He's a David Fincher uh, staple. He shot The Social Network and Fight Club and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, he's been he was nominated for all those films, and and the score Trent Reznor, mm -hmm. Atticus Ross, Nine Inch Nails essentially doing the score. They've done the all the scores for uh, like the last couple. Uh, David Fincher films. They won the Oscar for the Social Network. Mm -hmm. um, what an incredible score! I Agreed. I I wrote down that the music, even though it's passive and relaxing, almost it actually instills a sense of dread. Mm -hmm. it, it's a that weird dichotomy of it being both kind of soothing but eerie at the mm -hmm. same time. Very eerie. I I obsessed with the soundtrack. Anything those guys do is, I mean. Incredible. They also did the score for uh, Watchmen on HBO, that oh. show. They killed it there, too. These, they, those guys can make anything sound good, <laughs> honest. But So it has, yeah, it, it pulls you in with that kind of, like I said, fast food, easy, easy to digest, trashy thriller plot, but it's really not that at all. It's really sophisticated and yes. smart. It tr it tricks you a couple times throughout the movie. It just pulls the rug completely out of you. The performances are out from under you. The performances from everyone are top-notch. Yeah, I mean, what's not to love? I couldn't agree more. I really agree with the underlying question about how messed up stereotypes and roles 
make us Mm -hmm. as individuals. And I think that's really all I wanted to say other than there are a couple of just small things that I wanted to mention. I think it's really developed well that this pattern repeats with Desi. Mm -hmm. There's a really quick line. Uh, Actually, I'm going to talk about a couple quick lines. Number one from the movie when Desi finds her at the casino after she's called him to pick her up. And she looks up from the bar and she goes, it's you. That is such a damsel in distress line. That is literally out of literature. No human being in real life would say it's you. That's something you would see in a cliched thriller that this movie is playing off of. Exactly. She she wants to inhabit the damsel in distress role to entice Desi so badly that she literally says a fucking movie line from the 40s, yeah. you know, to entice him to think of her as this helpless little puppy that's been abused by her husband. So anyway, I thought that was really good. Like another one that I really loved is when Desi's talking about how I actually really think about this dialogue that's so well written by Gillian Flynn. It almost mirrors. This is gonna sound strange, but Gilmore Girls, because Whoa. <laughs> I know it's kind of strange, but I love Gilmore Girls. However, there's a tendency for that show and for this movie. For the dialogue to almost be too intelligent. And there's a line that Desi says when he's talking about taking her to Greece. And she's romanticizing it and we'll be alone and we'll have this romantic getaway together. And he goes, octopus and Scrabble? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, a really funny line. But it's really quick and it sort of shows how magnetic the female characters are in those shows that they're so quick and they're so intelligent that they literally raise the bar of anyone around them to match that intelligence and that quick wit. And I think sometimes it's a little bit distracting as an audience. Sometimes you're a little bit lost. Like it almost takes you a minute to catch up, but it does really exposes the magneticism of these women who are so intelligent that they literally take other people's intelligence and raise them, like jack them up because people want to please them. And that's true for Lorelai Gilmore, I think, and Rory Gilmore. And I think it's true for Amy. And she uses that. And this is a side note, but I also think that Lorelai and Rory use that as well in Gilmore Girls. It's <laughs> a total tangent. But that's kind of yeah, that, I, that's yeah. pretty much all I wanted to say about the book and the movie. I love both. I'll probably read the book again, and I'll probably watch the movie again. So highly recommend both. Four out of four for both the novel and the show, the movie. Agreed. Well, this has been wonderful. I've had a great time. Go go check this out. You've probably already seen it. Let's be honest, audience. <laughs> it is but a little bit old. Yeah, but um, next week we are covering True True Grit, Grit. so read that or watch the movie uh, in the next week. We can't wait to get to that. That's right. And yeah, we really hope you enjoyed this pod. Um, If you learned anything from our discussion, it's that communication is key. Talk to your spouse, please, dear God. We don't want another another Gone Girl happening. I'm Danny. I'm the film expert. I'm Laura, the lover of book expert. 
Nailed it. And this has been Film Film is is Lit. lit. (laughs) Bye.